is the Scarehouse Podcast, and we're in Baltimore. What's up with that? Hello. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, I am Scott, creative director and co-owner of Scarehouse, here with, I'm going to point. I'm Glenn Ritchie, co-artistic director of Submersive Productions, and former, and sometimes if I get a random email present, uh, <laughs> uh, sound designer for Scarehouse. And I'm Ursula Markham. I'm the other co-artistic director of Submersive Productions, and sometimes helper of the Scarehouse yes. for many years. Many years, but I think it's been quite some time since you guys have been on the podcast because you've been so busy with Submersive Productions. Um, so I really can't remember the last time we've done one of these. It's, it has probably been years, I'm going to say. I'm going to guess 2013, Yeah, Yeah, maybe? after the first basement. That's when wow. we were most involved with the scare house. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Time flies. Yeah, so when so, we were last most involved. <laughs> yes. So, so to bring, now that we've also done over 100 episodes of this podcast, which is also kind of remarkable. Wow. But to, um, to bring some people up to speed, uh, Glenn and I have known each other for, I'm going to say, 35 years? <laughs> <laughs> Who's counting? <laughs> Uh, since why well, I, I just always say since uh, sixth grade. Yes. Yeah. And what's remarkable about the journey we've taken is Glenn and I both uh, both started working. Well, let me back up. The my memory is the first haunted house we were doing would have been in Doug and Kent's basement, and I want to say that would have been eighty three and eighty four. You know, and I think I don't know if this is still a thing that kids do where they do like. They turned the parents' basement into a haunted house. Hmm. But even back then, uh, Doug and Kent lived about eight or nine houses up the street from me. It became the most elaborate neighborhood haunted house that 13-year-olds could put on, where it would be just weeks of work. We made uh, hallways out of sheets. Um, there was a gag in involving crazy foam. There was an overriding story. Um I believe the second year, Glenn and his dad built a kind of a bridge that was actually like an uneven... Do you remember this? It was like, yeah. went up on a ramp, it was like an uneven... Uh, yeah, you walked on one side, it went ka-clunk, and you got to the other side, it went ka-clunk the other yeah. way. Yeah. And big scare. Big scare. <laughs> and then from there would have been... Uh, started volunteering at the Cloverleaf Area YMCA Haunted House, which Glenn's dad had been... Involved in in the very early days. Mm-hmm. Um, yep, charity fundraiser on the house. Yeah, it was the the one to go to in the area at the time. Yeah, <laughs> and um, towards the end of our time there, when we were in college, uh, Glenn was starting to get into the, the sound design. Then doing things on that was it a four track recorder? Is that? Oh yeah, and one's a little four track. Uh, it was a little cassette. And it used, because cassettes have stereo on one side, and you flip it over, stereo on the other side, for those who maybe have not used cassettes. Yeah. And so there were these little four-track recorders that would record four tracks simultaneously, and um, and it was great. Like, you can, uh, well, I was in a band, too, so you can, like, lay down a bass line and then put guitar over it and then sing over it and make, like, uh, demo tracks with mm-hmm. it. And but it was really great for sound design where you can record like a you know wind track and then put howling and witches cackling or whatever you want over it. And I would like take little samples from like uh, Pink Floyd albums and stuff yeah. and sneak them in there, record stuff off television and get it in there because 
television only happened once. Uh, yes. Or you have to wait a few weeks and the, the, right. it would rerun. Those, again, different days. But we had VHS recorders, too, so we could record tapes. Yeah. And then I could get little sounds off of there and stick those in. Sometimes we could rent uh, videos of movies. Yeah. And um, I would steal sounds from horror movies and sneak those into the the overall soundscape. So yeah. I, I was still, I was doing early form of sampling. Yeah. You could say. And I, I, a brief sidebar, I'd forgotten about this. Um, and this will answer the question of what was my, what was, what was I like in uh, middle school and high school? I'd forgotten. So you said we didn't have VHS. We didn't have a way to record. <laughs> so I remember one of the time, ta- one of the times I saw Raiders of the Lost Ark, I snuck a cassette player into the theater. Oh, right. So I could actually record the movie in the theater on an audio cassette tape <laughs> and play it back. I remember that. It was like you were watching the movie. Yeah. Yeah. Couldn't actually see it. Um, <laughs> and I think I will have to look and see because I've been doing all kinds of deep dive archive stuff. I think I still have some of those original cassettes from the YMC Haunted House. The Maze Mix is the mm-hmm. one I remember of... It would be because of the Cloverleaf area YMCA Haunted House was in this small little building across from uh, the the pool, and it was a well three story building. Well, not really a three story building. It was a one story building with a basement and an attic, mm-hmm. and of course not sprinklered and <laughs> no fire oh, or whatever. No, barely exit. Yeah, yeah. Uh, hallways that would be like fourteen inches wide, and you know, like how can we cram every last little thing in here? But the the basement contained a maze which had ramps and carpeting, and again, now now as a professional, thinking, okay, a maze in the basement of a building with no sprinkler system and pitch dark maze and carpet on the everywhere and padding. Like that's, <laughs> that's not good. But had a sound system down there and Glenhead with the four track had created this maze mix that had like things panning left to right and what have you. My brother also had a, a synthesizer. It was a radio oh, shack synthesizer. Yeah. Where you uh, you just flipped all these switches and knobs and you never got the same sound twice out of it. But I recorded a lot of wacky sounds from that too. And and what is remarkable? I mean, this is like something you would see in a Bob Zemeckis movie that we started doing. You know, we started doing that, and here we are, all these years later. I have a career doing Scarehouse and you're doing submersive theater. You're still doing audio mixing. You're still creating these immersive environments. You have much more than four channels of audio now to play with. (laughs) But I mean, how often in life do you see those moments of like somebody being 12, 13, like, Oh, this is what I want to do with my life. And they do. That rarely happens outside of like TV movies. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I feel like uh, uh, what we're doing now in some ways has been percolating since way back then, but I didn't really realize it until mm-hmm. maybe five, six, seven years ago. Yeah. Um, you know, I really enjoyed uh, making albums with music and in ma- and doing sound effects and um, being involved with uh, just being there with the Scarehouse team at from the like, from the conception of like let's build a world. Yeah. You know, and that that whole idea of you have a world and characters inhabiting a world. And that's so that's always been kind of in the mix when you're making mm-hmm. um, uh, haunted houses. 
But um, I guess the turning point for a lot of us was when, uh, uh, for whatever reason, we got lured into seeing Sleep No More. Mm-hmm. And we thought, oh, you can do something a little different with yes. this. And um, and then we saw, uh, Ursula and I went to see Then She Fell. Yeah. And it's uh, that's such a smaller scale. And we thought, oh, we could probably pull that off. We could probably find a space, mm-hmm. a similar size space, and have rooms and you know create something of, of that scale and st- it's still a very impactful experience it doesn't have to be hundred thousand square foot warehouse with uh all these sprawling levels and sprawling rooms yeah and i think that i mean people who listen to the podcast have heard us reference sleep no more a lot and are probably going to hear us reference it again uh frequently over the next several episodes because a bunch of us just went and saw it in my case again in their case for the first time but um yeah, it was, it was, well, two things. It was you guys who opened up the idea, who saw Sleep No More and sort of started telling us, like, you've really got to go mm-hmm. check this out. And I don't know if you know this, Glenn, but I think one of, if not the most downloaded Scarehouse podcasts is actually the one you did with Karina and with some of the Scarehouse, or, I'm sorry, Sleep No More super fans mm-hmm. in New York several Karina years Amelia, ago. Yeah. Uh, was the original Hecate in Sleep No More, and uh, of Sleep No More New York. Um, although I think she might have been Boston or brought it from Boston. Anyway, I, yeah, got, uh, we set up an interview quite a while ago before anybody had interviewed any characters in Sleep yeah. More. Yeah. It's become this like, uh, cornerstone of the fan community. <laughs> <laughs> interview with her. Yeah. And, but, and then similar, uh, similar to us in developing, cause Glenn was very involved in, uh, the creation of the basement and now in my case i was involved we were doing basement with me it was not because uh, i did not see then she fell until we'd already done basement for a couple of years but in pittsburgh uh with bricolage and Anne, who have both been on they've been on the podcast before some of the smaller scale immersive things they were doing was that same moment of oh okay now i see how exactly like you say sleep no more is such a huge vast show but it has developed this sort of core, almost the language of immersive theater, really, of just, and even in this latest show, which I'm sure, which we'll get to in a bit, like, there are moments you realize that how influential Sleep No More is, in the same way, I think, in haunted houses and themed entertainment, like the Haunted Mansion, even if you're doing something on a very small scale, even if you haven't been to the Haunted Mansion, you don't realize how much it's influencing what you're doing because some of those core decisions that were made all the year, all the years ago. And, um, yeah, it's, it's the whole immersive thing is as much as we talk about it on the podcast and, and those of us who are really into it, talk to it, talk a lot about it. I think there's still a little bit of a learning curve, which is something now that submersive your company has done, uh, a few of these productions. Are you here in Baltimore? Are you still having that education struggle of defining what immersive is and isn't. <laughs> um, I guess when we talk about it, when we go to explain what the show is, and it's just a different thing that no one's experienced, and especially around here where most people have not been to any immersive show, um, that, yeah, it is it is a struggle to explain exactly what to expect. And people, when people show up, we realized early on we have to give them a lot of subtle cues to, to make it clear this is not an escape room, this is not a murder mystery theater mm-hmm. kind of a situation. 
Um, it's not a game you can win or lose, for that matter. It's uh, it's a different kind of experience that some people are showing up and trying to get sort of gamified elements out yeah. of it. And um, and I can see how you would think that there's you know there are a couple moments where you have to you know take a note for one person or another, and then so we actually ended up like pulling back on some of those elements, so those cues weren't there. Interesting. To try to beat or win it somehow or level up and. Uh, uh, you, you became more interested in the characters' stories, which is where we put a lot of our, our energy, mm-hmm. is the stories, the story that the world was telling and then the character arcs uh, throughout the two-hour uh, experience. So the show's about two hours long. Oh, we're talking about Museum, yeah. by the way. <laughs> so the, the full title is H.G. Darling's Incredible Museum Presents the Treasures of New Galapagos, Astonishing Acquisitions from the Perisphere. Yes, I did that all by memory. <laughs> um, uh, no, I can do that, though, at this point. Um, and before we did a show called Mesmeric Revelations, um, that was the same, similar length, mm-hmm. Mesmeric Revelations by Graham Poe. Um, and it was the same process of like ex- getting people acclimated to what we're doing um, because they hadn't had this, this kind of experience uh, in, anywhere else. So, yeah, just, it, it's, so there's explaining it outside of the world, but there's also, like, trying to give people all these different cues so they can best experience it when they're mm-hmm. there. Um, so it, w- there's always a test phase when you make a new thing, uh, a testing phase where you just throw audience at it and you discover what they do. Yeah, I would also say, though, it's, it's interesting. Immersive is sort of this new hot mm-hmm. ticket... You know, and everybody's saying, oh, well, this, this show is immersive. Mm-hmm. But I think there are a lot of people who, who are making the shows who don't really know mm-hmm. how to define that. And I, I agree. I mean, I feel like Sleep No More and Then She Fell were both cornerstones of ways to think about telling a story, unfolding a story, and moving an audience through a story. Mm-hmm. But just because someone sits on your lap... <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> well, while you're having a meal yeah. doesn't make it immersive. Exactly. So yeah. for us what's really what we keep coming back to is the audience being there has to be central to the experience. Mm-hmm. The the audience is crucial and if you make a piece where it doesn't matter if the audience is there or not whether you touch them or sing to them or mm-hmm. have them sing to you you've got to make it more um make it more based on their experience mm-hmm. as well as the story itself. Well, jumping, so jumping back a bit, um, so you were both seeing Sleep No More, and then Glenn in particular, I know you really responded to that, seeing it many, many times. And then you would actually, uh, for people who have heard us talk about uh, Sleep No More so much, they might not be aware of Drowned Man, which you had actually taken trips out to mm. to see. Can you sort of talk a little bit about what Drowned Man was? Yeah, the Drowned Man. Um, so the, for those who've been to Sleep No More, you understand the size and scope of that. The Drowned Man was almost exactly twice the size, mm-hmm. twice the size of this cast, twice the size of a building, and made by the same company. And made yes. by, but made by Punch <clears throat> Drunk. So it was. It felt like an evolution of Sleep No More. Um, and yeah, I actually went to London twice for one like marathon death march weekend where I saw it six times over four days each wow. weekend. And people who people the for to the uninitiated that just sounds crazy. But there um 
it was it was like I mean sort of like Sleep No More was sort of like thirty some overlapping plays happening at the same time. Yeah, and it, it, it's the same thing with you wear a mask, you were told to be silent. Uh, the play, uh, the st- it's not really a play, but it's it's three hours and it's three loops. So you can follow a character through one loop and then pick up another character for another loop or jump between just mm-hmm. like Sleep No More. So the format was was very familiar and the idea of following was very familiar. But the scope, just the, the sizes of the sets were just massive. Mm-hmm. And the way they had it lit and dressed, it felt even more massive. Wow. And, yeah, there was, you know, a, a giant, you know, wreck car. There was, like, a whole, like, sand dune, uh, a desert scene. Um uh, when you venture down into the basement, you're in the basement of this, uh, the Hollywood studios, and it was like hell in a way. A lot of David Lynch influence. Wow. Just like Sleep No More, but they brought more of the David Lynchy influence into some parts of it. And, um, but then there's also this sort of Hollywood Western influence at the same time. But, um, I, I, what, what brought me there, one of the reasons I wanted to go was very much, uh, just is, is very strategic as I heard that there was there was speaking in it, and I knew if I did oh, interesting. something that there would be some speaking, and um, there, uh, uh, yeah, and then there's just their use of space, and it was uh, uh, their use of color in that show mm-hmm. was was a lot different. Like Sleep No More is very muted. You think if you close your eyes and think Sleep No More, you probably think like muted browns mm-hmm. and red, you know, mm-hmm. and that's sort of the color in black and. Um, in uh, the Drown Man, it's a, a broader palette. Interesting. Um, it was still very dance focused, but they ha- also had more uh, uh, performers who were just actors, um, a- acting and voice performers. And uh, uh, but they were doing some movement stuff. Interesting. With some dancers sometimes. So yeah, there was yeah, it was a really interesting mix and uh, as a lot of technical tricks that they did that, with, especially with sound mm-hmm. that I had not seen before and they had one character who was a uh, foley artist oh, and, and so I'd, I'd totally follow that character and that yeah. was my, you should tell my people what a foley artist character is. a foley artist <laughs> is the person who uh during a movie like makes sounds so if you if you see somebody walking across a room and hear <laughs> that hopefully you don't hear that because that's the sound of a hand on the yeah. <laughs> table but uh, so they would have put their hands in shoes and make that sound because you, know, you you can't pick up all the sound that's happening in a room when you're trying to capture a performance. So mm-hmm. a Foley artist fakes all those sounds and tries to make it feel real. Um, yeah, so there's some really there's a really neat scene with a Foley artist doing that stuff. Oh, that's but of course in a surreal punch drunk uh, way. It, it's it's so it's I'm going to try this. It's difficult to really explain sort of the punch drunk style, but if I may. It takes, you know, they, they will be set in a large building and it will take sort of elements of a video game, for example, like one of these sort of sandbox style video games where mm-hmm. you can sort of explore and do what you want or you can choose to follow a certain character or go on a mission, if you will. But what when we talk about loops, it is um, another video game reference, sort of like a Bioshock or almost like a Groundhog Day in a way that there are characters who are in these loops. Like they have a, like, like as Glenn said, overlapping plays. There's about an hour-long loop that will repeat three times of these characters doing these things. And as you watch and flip, you realize, oh, okay, at that's where this character, you know, 15 minutes in, this character did this, and that's why this character 20 minutes later did that. So I that is why... I think part of the reasons these become so addictive is the worlds they create are so massive 
you've got to go over and over and over just to explore. But then also it can kind of be like with the loops, the analogy I would use as, as a kid who grew up on cable is there would always be those movies you would catch on cable that you never <laughs> saw from beginning to end in one sitting. But you maybe like, I always see the last 20 minutes of this movie. And, I see, and then at some point after over years going, I think I've finally seen the uh, Kurt Russell Goldie Hawn classic Overboard. I finally figured out <laughs> how it works, how that movie happens, because I've finally seen like the first 15 minutes and then the last and the 20. <laughs> so that's kind of what it's, it's, it's like. Um, and that's why you hear of people going, you know, in my case, I've been six times. We were talking to somebody last night who has been 139 times. Mm-hmm. Um, it becomes that, not only that escape, but it, it does, you know, in, in Sleep No More, there's that phrase, fortune favors the bold. It encourages you to go through doorways, to explore, to open doors, to do, do all that. And back to sort of the, the as, as you said, the building blocks to this, I was thinking about this on the drive up here. Uh, growing up, like Glenn was always into games like Myst or some of these exploratory mm-hmm. early computer games, video games, like all those elements of enjoying creating world building with sound design and video game exploring. And then I don't, I mean, I remember how excited you were and still are, of course, about Sleep No More and um, all these shows, but it wasn't like. I don't remember a point of you saying, I am doing all this because I want to eventually <laughs> do this. So at what point for for the both of you did you start going, like, I think we should actually um, do this? Because both of you have backgrounds in being creative and being artistic, but not a theatrical background. You have not, to the best of my knowledge, there's not like a history of, because I've known you both for so long, I'm unaware of like, Oh yeah, we used to produce plays and things. That's it was a little while. It was a little bit before we worked in the basement with you, and we had seen Sleeping More. And somebody said, "Hey, someone should do that with Edgar Allan Poe." Mm. And I said, "Yeah." And actually, Punch Drunk had done something that they called Mask of the Red Death. Mask of the Red Death. That was yeah. Edgar Allan Poe related, but I actually didn't know much about it. And but at the time, like when they first someone said that, I initially pictured, okay, you have over here in one corner, you know, a, a pit and a pendulum kind of scenario, and mm-hmm. someone's getting bricked into a wall over here, <laughs> yeah. and you sort of ran between them. And I was like, okay, that might be interesting, but it's not it doesn't still feel like a show to me. So let me just let percolate on that. Mm-hmm. And we we went through and did the whole basement experience, and that was. An experience of let's make a new thing no one has made before mm-hmm. and jump off a cliff together into this. You know, we we went all in on that. Yeah. And we didn't know exactly what it was going to be while you were announcing it and even selling tickets yeah. at some point. Yeah. We still hadn't quite finished it. <laughs> and we're like, oh. so So much so. different than now. <laughs> yeah. Where Scarehouse has a full plan all the time. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you guys really do as much as, as much as anybody does, really. So, because movies, as you know, movies are being made and you see a trailer before the movie's probably Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, it's even fully shot. Nothing wrong with, yeah, anyway. Well, we were, we were working on the, on the basement and, I think once we got to the end of that, that whole fear factor of making something that no one's made before, that shouldn't mm-hmm. make you afraid uh, to, to start. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I think it was at just shortly after that open that I applied for a grant. And, and it, it was the first year, it's interesting because it was the first year that the grant had been made available in Baltimore. Oh, okay. So it it was something, it was on my radar because I'm a visual artist that 
this new grant was happening, mm-hmm. it was for it was it was perfect. It was for an individual artist mm-hmm. who had an idea that they really wanted to do, but mm-hmm. just needed the funds to do it. But it mm-hmm. was it was definitely geared at people who wanted to take a creative leap. Yeah, it wasn't making something that they had already made or extending a body of work that they had already done. It was okay. like this is to help you. Do the dream. Okay. Yeah, and it was like, find your dream project. Find your dream project. And so I said to Glenn, you have nothing to lose. And if if you've ever applied for a grant, it helps you solidify and crystallize what it is that you want to do. Yeah, perfect. So... And I haven't stopped... I didn't stop talking about it. Yeah. And I said, just apply for the grant. (laughs) Just apply for the grant. Um, So I did. And we... uh, we got the grant, and it, it didn't fund the entire project, but it was it was a, a really significant sum that got us, mm-hmm. you know, pushed forward. But also, uh, if if uh, I know, like, grant applications is not sort of the core topic with the, this sort of podcast. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if we have a core topic. It's uh, pretty dry stuff. But uh, uh, let me tell you, if you actually apply for a grant and you take the application process seriously, it actually is the first stage of actually making the thing. It actually crystallizes what you want oh, yeah. to do. And you, you realize, oh, I'm serious because now I've applied for a grant. Yeah. And then you get the grant and you jump up and down and celebrate for about five minutes and you're like, holy crap, I have to do it now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Because they're giving me oh, money. Man. Yeah. They want you to report afterwards what you've done and how <laughs> yeah. you've done it. And yeah. Like, okay. I guess I know what I'm doing for the next year yeah. of my life. So um, that was for Mesmeric Revelations of Edgar Allan Poe. Um, I think I had a title when I got the grant, and I had uh, a sense of how many characters there would be, what who the characters would be. They mm-hmm. were pulled from um, Edgar Allan Poe's life and fiction, with a focus on the women in his life. So his uh, wife Virginia and his mother Eliza were characters, and um, a character we called Sarah, who was uh, Sarah Helen, based on the characters, <laughs> the real life person, Sarah Helen Whitman. Who Poe's in, engaged to for about a later month. Later in life. Uh, yeah. Later in life. Um, uh, and so we learned all, we went deep into the history of Poe and learned all that stuff about him and then started uh, to talk to people in the Baltimore theater community, which I, w- with which I had no ties whatsoever. Yeah, that's, exactly, <laughs> that's what's remarkable to me. That is and Because um, part of this was, you know, I, I loved going to Scarehouse, and I loved going up to New York to see stuff, and I'm like, why is this happening in Baltimore? The talent is here. There's incredible talent, crazy art stuff happening oh, yeah. all over Baltimore, but there's not a lot of immersive theater. Um, people keep talking about something called the Rooms play that was happening, uh, that happened about three or four years prior, a couple of years prior, and people still talk about that, but it was a weekend event, mm-hmm. a lot of people were involved, it looked really cool, um, and that was about it, but at least that we had that to refer to, we had that to refer to and Sleep No More to refer to in terms of like what we were yeah. doing, so um, so yeah, it was like, I, I had these characters and all the backstory, a sense of what, who, what the characters could be, um, Auguste the Detective is another one, um, we had a mysterious character called Barkeep, uh, which was... Uh, well, if we ever do it again, I don't want to spoil it. So but it, that was like really a mystery to try to figure out who Barkeep was. Uh, and another fairly mysterious character called V, uh, who was taken from a lot of Poe's different narrator voices. And a lot of his verbiage came from that. Um, we, in the remount, we had a character called The Stranger. We added upstairs, who's mm-hmm. only upstairs, mm-hmm. uh, that only like six people got to see per night. So 
so that idea of like having again like having characters and you have a, and we, they all had their home base so it's like you made the room as mm-hmm. you're, almost like you would for a haunted house but the character inhabits well and but the, then they would wander outside of their zone and interact and well and that's that's something I was gonna say that we learned too at, for basement and um, I can't remember what experience it was that I went to but the actual physical space that basement is in is not a traditional space for this kind of thing and there's some in our world, there's some limitations in terms of throughput and things. So we learned a lot that first year at Basement on, oh, here's how you can make sort of a theatrical thing without having to rely on what you have to do upstairs where it has to be very realistic and very, mm-hmm. like, okay, you're going into a room, here's four walls, here's a hallway, here's a thing. You know, it can be more surreal and, and, and suggestive and just be in a big open space with sort of these little pockets mm-hmm. and with... And I think with uh, Ms. Merrick, we should talk about the the building you're in. That was sort of part of it, too. Like, you had limit. You were in this historic building, so it's not like you could say, all right, I'm going to build the set over here. You had to sort of have the, the building itself infuse what you're doing, but also be respectful of there's only so much you can do because it's a historic building. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah, that's so it's, part of it. it. And it's part of the, the National Trust, um, <laughs> which means that we there was very little that we could do that that changed the building in any way. So mm-hmm. we couldn't even put a nail in the wall. And I'm sorry, which building was this? Oh, this was the um, Enoch Pratt house. So Enoch Pratt was um, a forefather of Baltimore who established the public library system here in Baltimore. He was living concurrently at the same time that Edgar Allan Poe was in the city. So his house was historically accurate for the time period that wow. we were after. It was attached to the Maryland Historical Society that oversees it. That's right. who we worked with and who let us into the building. Right. So we, yeah, we needed to get permission to use said building, and they very kindly let us do it. But we needed to build a world without changing the building yeah. which we were in, which actually made it better mm-hmm. because then we ended up going very abstract yeah. in some strange and wonderful ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, but... Baltimore, not unlike Pittsburgh, is a town with great history and great mm-hmm. historical architecture. So if you want the if if you're doing site specific work, you want the work to be as much the the place you are in to be as much a character mm-hmm. in the show. Mm-hmm. And the house was very much uh, an influence on how the show developed. And I really liked the uh it was it was definitely big enough for what we were doing and we wanted it to be intimate and another part of conceptualization the early concept of it is like i liked sleep no more and i like the, uh, the free roaming aspect of sleep no more and i like the intimacy of then she fell but then she fell is very much on rails essentially yes. like yeah where you sit at the beginning determines the path you take and they sort of hand you off from one thing to another and mm-hmm. it's a highly curated experience mm-hmm. um which is great because it's very uh it's very it can be very personal at times very close and uh, you're guaranteed a certain kind of experience. Mm-hmm. You don't really have to. It's it's not de- totally dependent on your curiosity and how you apply yourself. And I think people have great. Uh, you're guaranteed a certain level of experience from then she fell, and mm-hmm. people like seem to respond to that a lot better because they don't have to uh, do quite as much. It's not yeah. really, they don't have to apply yeah. themselves as much. So, but I, I wanted to sort of mix the two, the intimacy with the free roaming mm-hmm. aspect and the exploratory aspect. I wanted people to discover things and have to work for it a little bit and to be a little bit curious. Um, 
And again, we, we did learn a lot from doing that show. And I, I went to every single show. It, it had a, an initial run and then a remount. I think we did about 62 shows, about 1,800 people. And so our claim to fame is it was the longest running <laughs> immersive <laughs> yeah. theater piece oh, yeah, in Baltimore history. Yes. And, um, and a lot of people saw it and got to know us through it. Um, but yeah, that was, and I feel like museum is definitely an evolution of everything mm-hmm. we learned from that show. You know, I still love that show. Like people say, which one do you like better? I'm like, you know, which kid, Yeah, which of your babies <laughs> do you like better? Like, yeah. Sorry. But, um, but mu- museum, you know, we did l- learn so much and sort of raise the bar on, in all aspects. Well, and the intimacy of your shows is, is really what, what makes it very profound, I think, because yeah, I mean, I, I love Sleep No More, of course, but I mean, how many, and it doesn't seem obvious when you're in it, but as you go through certain scenes as the night progresses, you realize just how many people are mm. exploring the space along with you. you. Yeah, I'm sure you know the number. Is it 200, 300? It's more like 350, possibly. 350, yeah. So, yeah. yes, Sleep No More is massive, but you're with 350 people, <laughs> whereas the submersive shows are usually more like in that, you know, if... if if Sleep No More is 300 to 350, yours tend to be like 30 to 40 people. Yeah. Yes. And then the space, what will happen in um, Sleep No More is you'll go, okay, oh, I have to go through this over and over and over because I need to understand what's happening. You know, Hecate is doing this thing. And then on the next loop, I'll go upstairs one floor and see why she's reacting to what's happening up here. It's very nice on your shows because I can have that intimate experience with one loop, one, one scene, and then come back the next night and I'm on the other part of the building, and I can sort of glance over and see mm-hmm. across the way, like, okay, I get it. I didn't have to go up three flights of stairs and run and right. do everything else. But the scale of the building totally informs that. Yeah. You know, I mean, the scale of the building reinforces the intimacy mm-hmm. in a way that you can't get with a warehouse like yeah. Sleep No More. Yeah, no, museum, Ms. Uh, Revelations took place mostly on one floor where all the public stuff happened. Uh, the secret stuff was... Uh, there was a little bit downstairs and a little bit of a back room, and then there was an upstairs. In the remount, we had a, a, we were using the second floor a little bit. Um, museum is four floors, yeah. <laughs> and um, from a directing point of view, uh, we we had three three directors, and you really need that. Uh, we, we all had our different focus, but um, you really need to have three directors when when you have four floors going on. Oh yeah, there's a there's you know, a performer uh, in, during rehearsal, you know, t- completely alone on the third floor doing a scene. You're like, oh, my God, I feel so bad for her. And you run upstairs and you look yeah. at that and you see a tag team sort of back and forth. And, yeah, um, yeah it's it can be crazy making. And you're, you're trying not to forget, you know, whole threads that are going on. Mm-hmm. Well, it, it um, so Ms. Merrick was, both, both shows are two hours long, more or less. Mm-hmm. And, and I just saw a museum. Uh, yesterday and Friday, I've seen it twice during this visit. With uh, Mesmeric, it was you know a sort of a dreamlike two-hour experience set to a, uh, a somewhat rigid audio scape, Complete, right? a completely fixed soundtrack. So, yeah. so as soon as we press play, all the action was queued off of it. Mm-hmm. It didn't stop, and we never during the run we never had to stop it. Um, yeah, so that that was that was much different. Museum. Um, there's, uh, so that, that was a single soundtrack, right? Yeah. And so a museum has about 12 different rooms wow. with different, uh, two hour long, its own two hour long soundtrack, but some of them are looping and then they cue on to the next thing depending on what happens. 
and um, the uh, uh, so but but we were waiting for certain cues for certain events to happen in the okay. performance before we cue on to the next thing. So it's it's a little more like it's a, maybe part way between um, what we did for Mesmeric and what we the way a regular theater performance happens where there's somebody you know running cue lab mm-hmm. hitting cues during the performance to hit yeah. certain marks underneath the performance. Um, and there are times when a soundtrack kicks off and then a performance uh, uh, locks into that mm-hmm. sort of five or ten minute section and then it that section sort of eases, then it eases up back to like a loop and people go and do their things. So, yeah, it's, it's actually harder to figure out in retrospect exactly how it all syncs up. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, given that there's no overriding soundtrack to hold it all together right? or anything specific that's holding it together. It's just that the, we all know now the performance, this performance, this scene takes about this amount of time and they can hear other things happening. We have you know, physical cues and other cues where they can hear something's happening. Like, okay, I should probably wrap this up yeah. and move on to the next <laughs> yeah, scene. <laughs> um, a, lot, a lot of scenes are are scripted. I mean, every scene is scripted to some extent, um, except for moments and a couple scenes which are more uh, uh, open sort of improv and dialogue with audience members um, uh, within, you know, certain parameters that you just set up with the story and the questions that are asked. And, mm-hmm. um, uh, and the performers uh, have gotten really good at sort of making people feel... Uh, you know, in a non-pressured way of participating, because mm-hmm. I, I, I hate regular sort of participatory theater of like let's yank somebody up on stage. Yes. <laughs> yeah, same. Hey, we're performers. We we love the performance stage. Wouldn't everybody like yes. to have that opportunity? <laughs> yes. Um, no, no. <laughs> not everybody would like that. And I think some people are scared away when they when they hear it's participatory theater. Mm-hmm. Um, and we try to explain. And some of the the, the critics have been really kind in explaining that this is not that. Like, nobody is pressured, and mm-hmm. even when you are brought into it, you're not on the spot Yeah. at any point. So anyway, back to that structure. We were talking about structure. And <laughs> the uh, uh, the structure of museum, yeah, we were able to sort of let, let certain parts of it breathe a little more mm-hmm. and um, uh, in a way that a rigid soundtrack uh, wouldn't let you. But the soundtrack, too, for Mesmeric, you know, there were pockets where people were able to sort of do their own thing and fit it in. There was mm-hmm. never, like, a moment where they had to, like, there were only, like, a couple, like, really hard marks they had to hit at certain key points. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, it's an interesting comparison. But having uh, f- four floors to spread the soundtrack over also let us have different themes to each floor and different themes for each room, mm-hmm. different feeling for each room. Well, and how did this all, not only how did this all come together, but we should, again, if, we should absolutely talk about the building this is mm. housed in, which, again, you guys oh, wow. are becoming <laughs> becoming known for uh, almost sites, well, I mean, I don't want to I guess, I, I don't want to call it site-specific, because these shows could potentially be mounted in other kind of locations, but they're so enhanced by the space they're in. So, um, talk to us about the building and yeah. how this all came to be. Yeah. Ursula. So um, my graduate degree is in museum studies, and part of my 
learning process was about a family called the Peel family. Mm-hmm. And back in the early 1800s, when we were still trying to figure out what America meant, there was a man named Charles Wilson Peel. He had many sons. He was a portraitist. He painted beautiful oil portraits of people like George Washington oh. and generals and um, all the founding fathers. He also got interested in taxidermy. <laughs> he was a self-taught taxidermist. And the reason that he was interested in taxidermy is he thought, like many people at that time, that a learned public would be better as a voting public. Mm-hmm. And so he was making these specimens so that people could study science. This okay. was a time of scientific enlightenment, yada, yada, yada. So he then... As he started learning more about these specimens, he made those specimens available to the public for viewing. Okay. This was in Philadelphia. He actually was in a a row house, and then he opened a museum on the floor, the second floor of Independence Hall. Wow. Up above. And so, and one of the things that happened at that time is he was a fossil hunter, but they didn't know that they were fossils at that time. They were bones that people would dig up at these farms and things. And he heard about a farmer in upstate New York who had found a giant uh, tooth. Mm -hmm. And so he went up and paid the farmer to go dig on his land, and he dug up a mastodon skeleton. At that time, people did not know that there were species that had lived that were extinct. Okay. Okay. So the mastodon, this all, this is all relevant. I promise you. The mastodon, (laughs) um, helped people understand, oh, there are creatures that lived here a long time ago that are no longer alive. Okay. This was huge for America, which was still a very young country. And Europe finally had to look upon them as not backwater idiots, but Mm -hmm. people who were discovering scientific information. So, he had his mastodon uh, on display. Well, his museum was kind of winding down, but his sons wanted to carry on the tradition. And they said, let's go to Baltimore. It's a big port town. Mm-hmm. Lots of people. Good audience. We mm-hmm. could totally make, make a living there. And they built the first building that was supposed to be a museum when it was built. Mm-hmm. In the United States. Actually, in the Western Hemisphere. Because museums... Like, we go to museums all the time today, but then it was just private collections that people had in their homes. Mm -hmm. So this was the first purpose-built museum in the U.S. in Baltimore in 1814. The Mastodon was brought there. Admission was charged. But at that time, museums were, you know, it was sort of uh, the P.T. Barnum style. So you would have... um, oddities of nature. Mm -hmm. You'd have the two-headed calf, and you'd have vocal performers, and you'd have silhouettists, and you'd have scientific specimens, and you'd have Fiji mermaids, and all of these crazy things would be in one building, and people would go and see the place. So this building is where museum takes place. And, go ahead. So when we were doing Mesmeric Revelations, um, Anna should introduce now the name Lisi Stossel, who was performing in Mesmeric Revelations, and um, who had the initial concept of doing a piece that was in a, in a muse- cabinet of curiosity style museum involving puppets and certain specific events. That was sort of the initial concept. And we said, hey, I think uh, that sounds like something we'd be interested in helping produce. And um, 
while we were doing this American Revelations, we entered the Maryland Historical Society through a particular door that walked by the Mastodon. It was the actual Mastodon skeleton, and we have your picture where you're standing in front of it yeah. when you were here a couple years ago. And um, she she saw that you know all the time and thought, wouldn't that that would make a really interesting uh, part of a show, like having an actual Mastodon come to life? Yeah. Uh, Spoiler: We haven't we haven't said that publicly, but you know now that this run, this will probably end before anyone can buy a ticket. So, um, the uh, uh, the Ma- mastodon does play largely into the idea of the Peel Museum and into sort of the history of the show, and then it, it happens something that happens in the show, and in our, one of the themes of extinction, mm-hmm. um, sort of the birth of the notion of extinction came from the mastodon. Right. So back to site specific. I mean, I feel like that. This is about as site specific as you can get in terms of like the theme and the the subject matter fitting it. Well, and Glenn and I are talking about you know how these things we were doing in when we were younger, with no idea that they were building blocks towards what we do now. You your you know your degree is in this very thing where you are now producing a show that is <laughs> right right yeah it's, it's and we amazing. have museum people coming and we have museum people coming to see because it's completely a commentary on museums and collecting which has this wonderful aspect of oh you know wonder and amazement but this really dark side too mm-hmm. right that mm-hmm. it hasn't always been a great practice mm-hmm. um and there are parts of the show that that comment very heavily on that but the building itself is owned by the city of baltimore and it's served many purposes since being a museum back in 1814 and uh it was shuttered i mean they wow. it was it's been closed for about 20 years and it's just sitting there and the city owns it but they don't know what to do with it and it needs a lot of repair it's an old building mm-hmm. so it was perfect for us to say hey it's usable the the bones are really good it's in great shape um so go there and have a good time and they're yeah. in the process of raising money to to refurbish the building so it was it was just a marriage mm-hmm. made in heaven for us to say, hey, we can use the building, bring you some uh, some eyes and ears and mm-hmm. reinvigorate the knowledge about what, what a gem this is while you guys are raising money, and we can use the space. And it was perfect. Well, it's it's really remarkable as a guest when you go in, and it's, it's funny because last year, well, when we're continuing it with Inferno, we built, at Scarehouse, we built our own museum of of Mm -hmm. odd unusual paranormal things and um but but i mean with with what we did it's you know our museum is designed to look like a museum when you're going through in the dark and the strobe lights and everything else Mm -hmm. with with you working with all these artists you've created you know really the first two floors in particular look absolutely like a permanent museum exhibit like you would have no idea that that the artwork, the cases, the, all this stuff, it's just a tremendous amount of just, not only just stuff, but it's clearly been mounted in a very professional way. And, you know, there, there is a tremendous amount of work that's gone into writing the journals and the descriptions and the world building. How do you even begin to bring all those elements and people together to create something that expansive? Yeah, I, th- I think from also from like an audience perspective, when they first come in, 
you know, and they're first, you know, complaining about how much the ticket costs and all that stuff. I mean, not complaining, we haven't complaining, no. but, but a lot of people were, were like, oh, but the, the $55 tickets are all sold out, or the, the $20 tickets are sold out, and there's only the $55 tickets left, because we have, like, the early tickets you can get for cheaper. And, and I, I think they come to it, and they're like, wow, okay, there's a lot going on here. This is yeah. definitely worth more than a $20 ticket. But, um, <coughs> the, uh, the level of detail that we wanted is just, it's really hard to achieve, um, making everything absolutely from scratch. Mm-hmm. Um, so we brought in, uh, it was roughly 20 artists who, uh, had all created things. We had, some of them, we had them create certain specific things, uh, based on the, the background of the show and they were really into that, but others we selected um, and, and sort of reached out to because they were already making things that fit aesthetic okay. really well. And, but there's a lot of legit works of art from yeah. really strong artists in there. Like we have three, uh, Baker prize winners, which is a, a, a local, well, it's a statewide prize, I guess the Baker prize, which is, it's a, uh, regional, 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 pretty, mm-hmm. pretty major honor. Anyway, three winners of the Baker prize have artworks in there. And, um, uh, but yeah, and yeah, it could be, it could be a museum piece. It, our builder happens to be a builder who has worked for, uh, major museums mm-hmm. and built cases. Yeah. He's a display them. builder for professional. He just did all of the African American museum cases. Wow. So, I think yeah. at least three different artists have displayed the work in major museums mm-hmm. as well. So yeah, you could, and we did have an open house day where people just came and looked at it as a museum and it worked that yeah. way. Yeah. Oh yeah. Um, so it, it was a lot of, we were basically, you know, borrowing and, and, and renting a lot of these pieces to sort of fill out the world, but they were, of course, caref- very carefully selected and then reinterpreted. We have labels for everything. And, and we have the artist's permission to do that, of course. which is really important to know. Yeah, and it's not, um, yeah, we learned a lot and it, there weren't, nothing horrible happened, but there was, um, there's just a learning curve in terms of like how far you can take bring theater people and other artistic mediums together. Which is important to us. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's, we call ourselves a collaborative artworks company, not a theater company. Um, although a lot of people refer to us as a theater company because theater and performance become a strong component to what we've mm-hmm. done, at least, you know, thus far. But we bring in collaborative artworks, the collaborative artworks side, because we're thinking on all those other mm-hmm. uh, artwork levels. <laughs> and, um, uh, yeah, it's like there's a negotiation with each artist of like how they want their piece to be used. And some are like, oh yeah, I love it, just put it wherever you want. And other people say, no, I want a certain kind of lighting and I want it oh, to be shown a certain way, um, for, to get the effect that mm-hmm. I conceptualized for this piece. The and original we, concept. So we had to think it through. Do we still want to use it given those parameters? And in most cases, like, yes, we could work that in because it still was close enough to what we were doing. Mm-hmm. Um, that we could, we could accommodate that. And then there's also like, you're just having performance around and like, what are the parameters of the performance and how people interact with it? You don't want it to get damaged. Right. That sort of stuff, practical stuff too, that you had to think about. So, um, that's, but that's how we were able to get an enormous amount of detail in a small, you know, detailed, uh, a small space. It's about 10,000 square feet, but, uh, in a short amount of time. A density of detail. Oh, yeah. In a, yeah. in a, in a shorter amount of time. And then, but then there's also all the, like, letters and written material that we made, 
Um, yeah, I, I was looking through the journal of H.T. Darling yesterday before the, mm. you know, in that initial half hour, and I'm like, this had to take a tremendous amount of time <laughs> to put together. So that journal was made, the, the physical book was made by a book conservator at the Library of Congress. Oh, wow. And she was like, oh, I I, she saw her last show, and she saw Ms. Merrick, that is, and uh, she really enjoyed it, and she wanted to help in any way, and she's like, oh, I'd love to make something for it. So I said, I came up with the idea of having a physical journal and uh, that could be made mm-hmm. th- that she could make and so she made it and like the out- the outside paper is actually 18th century discarded paper that they didn't know where it belonged to from the Library of Congress they were just oh, going to wow. toss it out so they, she actually used it for the outside so oh, it's wow. like you just can't get more authentic than that yeah. like, <laughs> but it speaks to one of the things about immersive theater that you have to really think about is that the audience is going to be interacting with the objects, too, mm-hmm. at a very, very intimate way that you don't get in traditional Mm-mm. theater. Mm-mm. And so they have to be, they have to be pretty authentic. Yeah. And uh, that's, but that means time and, and labor, mm-hmm. time mm-hmm. and labor. So how do you get all these artists to work on it? Just like everything else, you ask. Yeah. And, <laughs> and you we certainly had people say no, mm-hmm. you know, but mm-hmm. you just keep asking and you find the right people to work with. And you do, you find a, um, a pool of people who have the temperament to do this kind of work mm-hmm. because this is collaboration. This is heavy lift collaboration. Yeah. You have to be a person that is willing to make compromises and work together and work very hard in a certain amount of time. Uh, so that's how you do it. <laughs> so how for how would you even describe H. C. Darling's incredible museum ellipses? How would you <laughs> like what what is that experience that people are entering? Well, we say it's the you have been invited to the grand opening of a new exposition ex Exhibition. <laughs> exhibition. <laughs> About an exp- expedition um, to another planet. So it's the this High Society Explorer, H.T. Darling, has discovered a way to travel to another planet. By and, accident. Yes. And he has brought back these objects that are on display from this from this other planet. So there's this sci-fi element. And then the with, within that structure, and it's it's quite remarkable how, how you have determined how to move people around and have these experiences. So, you know, as as a guest, you go in and you are exploring the museum, and as the as the experience goes on, you know, you are told like, if the door is closed, do not do not open it, and do not talk unless somebody engages with you. And so then, what happens is both the space and the story expand as the night goes on. So, you know, maybe at a certain point in the night, you realize, oh. One or two people just snuck upstairs. You know, a mm-hmm. rope was taken away and then put back. It all starts expanding out. And, you know, again, as, a, as the guests coming in, there are certain characters who are going around. And as Glenn said, they'll engage with you. But I, I thought it was very well done on how they will engage with you in a way that is not, again, it's participatory, but it is not like, come on, put on this funny hat. We're going to do a show. <laughs> they're, they're just making small talk. And, and the performer's can clearly sense of, okay, this person wants to actually engage and go with me, so let's go do this thing over here, whereas if it's just sort of a polite polite little exchange back and forth. And then also within this sort of two-hour window, you've set 
all throughout the space there are these schedules that will say, okay, there's going to be this lecture, there's going to be in this room, and this champagne toast, which is all a way of moving the crowd around, but also introducing the story elements and the story beats that all build up to that. So it's really, again, it, it seems so effortless, but for me from you know my background doing basement, doing all these things, I was thinking this is just such a tremendous amount of... <laughs> of overlapping circles going on. It's just tremendous. Yeah, we do we do call it four dimensional chess. It's yeah. very much about all of these paths need to overlap and intersect and come together. But you're it's very um intuitive that we needed to have some control and start small and then open up the experience and that was a way to help us mitigate the flow of the audience mm-hmm. by by opening it in sections that allowed us to have a better capability of where people went at what time and what they would see by mm-hmm. doing so. so. Yeah. Like, for instance, there's one moment when the uh, the third floor is officially fully open and people notice it. And it's not part of the planned... We have a, a schedule of events, too, that provides sort of a spine, a sort of uh, what seems like, anyway, the, the absolute spine of the show... And gives people cues of where they'll be going and what will be happening next. But there's all this other stuff happening around it. Mm-hmm. And the third, third and fourth floors are not part of that schedule of events. And the, the gateway to the, the third floor, that stanchion just opens up unannounced and people realize it and follow some characters up. And mm-hmm. this is one point where there's maybe 20 people up, just going between these two rooms and nothing exactly is happening in those rooms, but they're discovering it. And, Early on, we thought, oh, this is kind of a flaw. We have all these people just up here and nothing is happening. And then they go back downstairs um, in early testing. But then we realized, no, it's kind of neat because they see these rooms and it's like foreshadowing mm-hmm. because they're completely different than what's going on below. Yeah. And they're they're just getting a quick hit of this other world going on and other things are happening that mm-hmm. they didn't quite realize. And then they go back downstairs and then they go back up into those rooms later and then things are happening in those rooms and it's a way of using space to tell story, even absent of mm-hmm. specific performance happening in those particular spaces. Well, and, and for me, I was so grateful for the opportunity to see it two nights in a row because, you know, it is one, it's not really a loop, it's one straight two-hour narrative. But for me to be able to come back and follow certain characters and see, especially, you know, the the character of Percy, to see how... You know, the first night I was sort of in in and out, like I would follow him for a bit, then get distracted, then and realize by having the two nights and being able to sort of fill in the gaps and understand, oh, this is why he starts this way and he gets increasingly disheveled as the night <laughs> goes on. It's just remarkable. <laughs> and and I should say this show in particular, I mean it's all we're talking about this and it all sounds very um highfalutin, uh very funny. Oh very, so funny. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, because it's it's so dark. And if without the humor, it would be almost intolerable. Yeah. Like, we have a humanoid specimen, you know, display. Yeah, it's dark as it gets. And it's creepy to hear, and now time for the unveiling humanoid specimen. Every time I hear that, I feel like, this is this kind of, I wonder how creepy this is. For yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, but it, each step of the way, we inject this humor into it that makes it go down easier. But it also draws you in and implicates you. Because yeah. you're laughing, but at the same time, you're like, am I responsible? And... That's sort of part of the theme. It's like we want to express all the wonder of museums. And you mm-hmm. get drawn in at the beginning of like, oh, this is fun. Puppets are moving around and this is really neat. And I'm glad 
you know, this person went to New Galapagos and brought this stuff back for us. And then you realize there's this undercurrent of darkness to the whole thing. Right. And you're buying into it. Like, you're a patron, essentially, of this (laughs) darkness. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and certainly a huge component of this particular show is, are the puppets. Yes. And speaking of grant writing, you were working with the Henson Organization. The Jim Henson Foundation. Yeah. So we applied for a grant with them for this show and uh and we got it and it was yeah it was a really nice it, it, it basically i mean you, you tell them what you're going to do and then you show them the puppets you, you want to use when whatever stage they're in whether and, that's a drawing or a mock-up or mm-hmm, a yeah. fully built puppet you you let them know what you're after and right and then um and then they give you uh, is, uh this was called a workshop grant so they give you money to develop it and then you do the thing and you report later, but uh, but yeah, that was it was um, some serious puppet cred uh, <laughs> to get a grant. Yeah, oh, absolutely, <laughs> and it got got us some attention. And now that we've done it and put puppets into the show, we're like, wait, I don't think there's any going back. There's no, got to be puppets no. in right. everything. <laughs> in some respect, because that's another like immersive theater is one world where it still feels very wide open in terms of what you can do with it. But also puppetry, it's like there are these different strains of tradition in it that we were using yeah. strongly, but we also took it in directions, I think, that have not been used so much with puppetry. No, so. it's remarkable. Well, it, it, for this, it absolutely fit for a couple of different reasons. Lisi, the concept originator, has been a puppeteer for years, and that's she's she is based in the study of movement and puppetry. Mm-hmm. So it was imperative for her that the show have puppets in it. And given that we had to populate an entire museum with living specimens, mm-hmm. it's it's like the easiest way to make some outlandish, wonderful creature that has life, right? Yeah. That has animation. Yeah. So by and then the audience knows it's a puppet, but then they're just buying fully into it just because of this, we understand what puppets do. Yeah. You know? Right. Uh, it's, it's really hard to explain how, why it's working, but it's part puppets of it. Puppets are is, magical, yeah. and they, they move, and then you believe. Yeah. They move, and you believe. Yeah. So, so we've got all these specimens, and so that was really important. But it was also, um, it's a new way for people to engage with a living creature that mm-hmm. is not mm-hmm. an audience member. And many of the puppets became characters in and of themselves oh, yeah. to tell the story. And and we got really excited about this as a possibility. And it is funny because we have friends and colleagues who would say, Puppets? Yeah. What? Yeah. Why? <laughs> but as soon as you walk in the door to have all of those creatures mm-hmm. surrounding you and moving and doing things and creating part of the humor. I mean, oh, so yeah. much of the humor comes from the, the activities of the yeah. creatures themselves. So yeah, it was just, it was really fun. And I think we'll be using puppetry in the future for sure. Yeah. In terms of like how much, no matter how much planning you do, when you get, when you get the audience in and you start seeing the elements coming together, new things emerge. So we have these display cases. We have, compartments behind them where the puppeteers can go behind the display cases and operate things. So people are looking at it from the front, puppeteers from the back, reaching behind curtains, moving But you things. can't see the puppeteers. Right, you can't see the puppeteers. What you see are their hands with these elegant gloves, green gloves that were sort of... Gray. Gray, gray <laughs> gloves that sort of blended in with the green around them. But also, from the front, as soon as I saw them, like, oh my God, these are characters. These are like puppets in and of themselves. Yeah. These hands coming out and just, just bodiless hands yeah. 
displaying things. And this was like two weeks before we opened. And we, so we had a friend, uh, Michelle Minnick, who's also a director, brought her in. So, uh, and, uh, Susan and I, uh, were. Your co-director. Susan, Susan Stroop. Stroop. This was co-director on Mesmeric Revelations. Um, and sort of now sort of fairly permanent collaborator. Mm-hmm. Um, she, we were both sort of directing the performance and getting that into shape and like our heads would explode if we were going to add new, to having another character at that point. Yeah. So we brought in Michelle Minnick just to, just to hang out with uh, Jess Rasp, who's the other puppeteer, and Ursula, who's one of the puppeteers. We haven't said that yet. Ursula's a puppeteer in yeah. the show. Um, just to develop the hand gestures and create, turn these hands into characters. And that, that was that was a lot of fun. Um, and it just it adds so much to these yeah. displays. It's like it brings my life, even the parts that aren't puppets. Yeah. The hands become these little, like... Hand models to model yeah. and display the creatures. I'm, while I'm saying this, I'm making all these hand gestures. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, I love, and this is, uh, you're seeing more and more in our, in the haunted house industry with what Kevin's doing at Gorgalore and, uh, some of the guys in, from, from Erebus are bringing puppets into the haunted house industry. And I'm oh. the same way. Like, I, I'm somewhat ambivalent about animations, but, um, there's just something about, the puppet that just can, or even some of that, I don't want to give away because some people listening to this might actually see the show. Some of the things you do with the uh, certain costume changes and some of the very interesting, weird mm. way that the two curators <laughs> converse at various oh. points of the show. <laughs> it, like, it's, it's, you know what you're looking at, but then you don't know what you're looking at <laughs> the same way. And yeah, I think that, Something that I wish I that I need to remind myself to do more is to go to more uh, puppet shows and artistic more some of these more exploratory art shows because you see strange ways of putting together creatures and you go well I could absolutely branch off of that in what we're doing in the haunted house world because there's so many more ways to create weird visual creatures than mm. just pneumatics and pistons mm-hmm. and wires like some of the stuff that i've seen over the years with i mean again old weird guy i mean and the <laughs> stuff i remember in the 70s of um this is, this is remarkable the 70s were a weird time um <laughs> <laughs> that there was a tv series with shields and yarnell yeah because the 70s were a time where a a mime duo could get a variety <laughs> show, right? And oh, there was the was it Mum and Chance? Mum and, Mum and Chance. Chance. They're still they're still around. I, I don't have to describe Mum and Chance. Uh, yeah. So they're using their bodies and objects to make puppet like formations that they then move to tell story. That's <laughs> that's how I would describe and, Mum and Chance. And it was um, Mum and Chance in particular, they would do a lot of things with UV light, with you know, a solid black background, which, if anyone listening has ever been to the Little Mermaid show at Disney Studios, it is the same kind of thing. The puppetry there, I mean, yes, it's a Disney show, but it's very sort of Mum and Chance influenced. Mm. And when we uh, were doing Delirium 3D, there was one year where we had puppets and fish and things and like it's it's the oldest techniques of just flipping puppets around and using uh negative space and everything else but it's so strange and effective and yeah definitely when as you say when there's a puppet especially in this show like and sometimes you're not even really making an effort to hide the performer Mm -mm. but you're like no i'm watching the puppet 
and the puppet is getting this emotional reaction and I can clearly see the person next to me, but I'm, I'm focused on that. Yeah. That puppet. But I, I, th- I think the use of puppetry in the haunted house industry, the reason that puppets are so effective rather than pneumatics and pistons is that the human body can move in ways that no pneumatic yeah. or piston can do it. Yeah. And when that movement happens, we recognize that thing as alive. Yes. Yes. That is absolutely that kind of motion means that that thing is living, which can be really effective if you want to scare the hell out of somebody. Yeah. Yeah. You yeah. Know? yeah. There's just a certain <laughs> level of responsiveness that a person has. And you, when you, if you sense that there's a person behind it, you're like, okay, what's it sees me really actually sees me. What's it going to do? Yeah. 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 And you had, I mean, you had in the summoning the, the, uh, the big skull. Oh, yeah. The thing. great one. Yeah. Yeah. That was a kind of puppet. Yeah. And you had yeah. way back in delirium, you had scabbers. Yes. Scabbers. Yeah. That was, that was a puppet. Yeah. You guys have been using yeah. puppets for a long fun. time. <laughs> and then even the, pu- you had a pop up, uh, uh, hand puppet at some point that was like almost like a living yes. carnivorous plant. Oh thing. wow, that was back in '99. Yeah. That was had, a long time ago. We had a ago. big yeah puppet sticking. It was so much fun. Yeah, <laughs> but those things they're really effective and it's really simple. That's the thing is the simplicity of it mm-hmm. and the the magic punch that you get out of that simplicity. It just blows my mind every time. So two of our other performers were uh, also puppeteers. So Alex Vernon who plays. Uh, Percy, Dr. Percy Warner, mm-hmm. left-hand man of H.D. Darling, and uh, uh, head of field logistics. Yeah. <laughs> data, acquisition. data acquisition. Data <laughs> um, he, acquisition. Uh, uh, Alex Vernon is a puppeteer and puppet fabricator. Yes. And he created the eyeball. The, there's a sentient eyeball in it that yeah. you can... The it, remains of the, the unfortunate crew member. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the unnamed crew member. Yeah. And um, then there's these other... They look like sort of upside-down jellyfish, and um, they're sort of moving up and down and, and feeding, uh, drinking from a bowl and going back up, and they, uh, we call them the clinging medusosa. And he made those out of plastic. Fantastic. Fantastic. And, yeah, it's and so I get, um, I, at the first 10 minutes of the show, I get to operate one of those and like I can hear people responding on the other side and it's just really fun. Um, Francisco Benavides, uh, designed the Mastodon. He plays the groundskeeper. And he plays the groundskeeper mm-hmm. in the show, which are our most, most mm-hmm. mysterious character. And, um, yeah, that was, that was probably nine months from beginning when he started first putting parts together mm-hmm. and, um, uh, took a rough, probably about ten different people. At some point, was paper macheing that thing to make yeah. it. Yeah. Oh, and carving it's, it. It's significant it. in size. It is yeah. and scale. And, mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And they look, they look like real bones. I mean, they look like the real. Yeah. The yeah. Real. yeah. It has this spine and everything. So. Well, and and there's also um, there's an element of movement. I mean, somewhat dance, but movement. And then I think what's remarkable in this particular show is even though there's so much sound design. There are so many great moments with the Macedon of the feet hitting on that hard on the hardwood mm-hmm. floor, or a lot of moments where your performers are communicating each other by making sounds and make the, and and I think that's something that I definitely picked up from Sleep No More, but also a lot of shows I've seen. And again, as a haunted house guy, it's a strange thing to say, but just when you're watching people who have a dance background or a clown background, who know how to move their bodies and just slightly interesting ways or just there is that power of seeing five people in perfect unison doing a thing Mm. and it's 
tactile and it's right in front of you. There's mm-hmm. something about that that just gives you goosebumps. It's so yeah. good. Yeah. And it, I think it, it helped a lot to have one of the directors also be the sound designer and constantly thinking about where, how is the sound that they're making in this scene? Yes. From their bodies and from their vocalization sounds, you know, how, what way do you support that or not support it? Mm-hmm. You know, because that's, that's a choice. There is there are a couple scenes in a grand hall, one in particular where the uh, HT is talking about how he first got to New Galapagos up until when he first meets Akumaxila, who is the humanoid specimen. Mm-hmm. Um, the all the sound on the second floor is turned off for that scene, and it's okay. like they they go into this like mode where they're all of a sudden. The whole cast, minus Echo Maxla, is telling a separate story upstairs. Yeah. Um, gets pulled into the story, and they're making it... It's just like theater magic, where they're making all the sounds with their voices, mm-hmm. and they're making their own sound effects. And that's... Whereas a sound designer, I'd say, nothing. Like, there's yeah. no sound design to this <laughs> yeah. coming from them. Yeah. And... Um, and then, but there's other scenes where it's like the sound swells up yeah. and it takes over the scene. What, and I know from um, so many years of Scarehouse and uh, the whole amount of time and effort that goes into determining the sound bleed, because it's inevitable. Mm-hmm. I mean, oh, yeah. Scarehouse, yeah. even Scarehouse, I mean, was summoning part of the reason, frankly, we built those giant walls was so that we could control the sound a little bit. Mm-hmm. But, um, especially with, with both of the last shows you've done, like you're in these big open space, there's so much thought that, um, I remember we would talk about at Scarehouse and now talking with Ben, our sound designer at Scarehouse, of, okay, it's inevitable that you're going to have these crossfades and these dissolves, and what are the frequencies we're going to do and what are the kind of sounds, and mm-hmm. there's a lot of thought that goes into that. Yeah, I feel like I'm still I'm still learning a lot about that, um, about the frequencies and the uh, what like rumbles do we want to get yes. to travel yeah. from one room to another mm-hmm. and others we want to hear just mostly just in that room and right and um and then for the big scene where I have that you notice the subwoofer yeah the one uh end of the room where there's this big um whoosh it's it's interesting because there's like there, there are times when when wind comes and they're telling a story and you're going whoosh as a group yeah and then there's later where wind appears and it's fake wind that's made from a wind machine that's been, that was recorded. That's a recording of a, wake, of a wind machine. It was kind of fake wind that they're remembering. In that Interesting. Scene. And then later uh, in the climatic scene, we imagine it's actual wind being sort of blown at them from a portal from New Galapagos that yeah. Echo Maxwell is summoning. And that is a real recording of wind. And it needed the subwoofer to really sell it because a big part <laughs> of the wind is the whooshy feel in your body. Yeah. The physical and, manifestation of it. And they're all being yeah. blown away by this yeah. wind. So, yeah, it's throughout the course of it is thinking about where where is the sound sources conceptually coming from and what does it mean? Mm-hmm. Well, so as we record this, there are only about, is it seven performances seven left? Seven performances oh, left. Yeah. yeah. So this has been, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and again, not, again, not unlike Scarehouse, so much work in terms, and multi, uh, What's the word? Multi. It's early. Uh, <laughs> um, and so many different styles of decisions and artworks had to make because there's a video component to it. Mm. There are all the photos that had to be created, all the text, like so much work. So um, I know we talked to the, uh, the uh, 
talked earlier about, you know, there's a couple different things, but like, so do you think your next project, do you think you'll continue to get larger? Do you think you'll <laughs> say like, let's try something small. Let's, where do you go from um, here? Yeah, we'd love to do something small. Um, I think we, we never feel back about bad about pulling back to something small. Um, I was saying for a little while there, small is the new big. <laughs> uh, the level of impact you have on the individual, you can control so much more when it's small. Whereas, uh, you know, I think we're serving, we, we have up to like 40 people uh, as in the audience in the show. And you know, I think we're serving them very well, but, uh, you know, some people may find themselves on the fringes of it and not quite catch mm-hmm. this character when they want to or get, you know, a one-on-one um, which happened, we haven't even mentioned that, but there's mm-hmm. a lot of one-to-one performances that happen yeah. over the course of the two hours um, that only, of course, only one audience member gets, or maybe two audience members get. So um, being able to just like do a show like we did the show called Plunge earlier in the year where it was only one, one-to-one experiences, yeah, and only 100 people got to see that. Well, yeah, and the, thank you. I'd forgotten we hadn't talked about Plunge. Plunge was uh, where did you? What historic building did you do Plunge in? <laughs> that was in a church, St. Mark's Lutheran Church, uh. which had um, it's it's a room that they now rent out to a theater company because they don't use it anymore. But it's this beautiful oval room, all wood paneled with individual little cubicles within it. It had originally been designed for their religious education for little people. Mm-hmm. Um, so they would, after the church service, they would go up to the room and they would have their little Sunday school in these little rooms. Uh-huh. So what we did is we had, we paired an artist with a storyteller. They came up with a concept and then built an individual installation in each one of the little rooms. And then you as an audience member would go in one at a time, be in this installation and experience the story um, and there were five of these different stories, and so you would have a chance to see mm-hmm. many of these stories, um, but not not all. Uh, yeah, so, so that was, was a great that. building. And then, but that wasn't even <laughs> our smallest show. Oh, um, right. I guess. Oh, in, in some ways it was. I think as an audience experience, it was all one-to-one, so that's... Right, can't it was get just much, you as mm-hmm. the audience. Smaller, but that, that was five different spaces and five little, little encapsulated worlds. So we did Broken Bone Bathtub, which was... Uh, a solo work that was already developed by Siobhan Laughlin, who is loosely of Brooklyn, uh, and she she's fairly nomadic, and she stayed with us for about five weeks, and we did uh, Broken Bone Bathtub, which takes place in the bathtub of a bathroom in a house, and ours happens to hold about 12 people, so we did... It's a big bathroom. Yeah, it was an audience, yeah. <laughs> an audience of 12, and um, we we created, uh, we invited an, an artist, Amanda Burnham, to do to, 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 um, an installation that sort of... Uh, uh, was influenced by, yeah. the, by the script. Yeah, she read mm-hmm. the script, and then she sort of created this installation out of our, our house, <laughs> <laughs> and that you would see it when you came in, and then you would see it as you were ascending... And I made a little soundscape for it, and we sort of wrapped it up and created a full experience out of it. Mm-hmm. Um, we had like a response wall with beer, craft yeah. beer. <laughs> yeah. and, um, it was our house after all. Yeah, so yeah. We, we made it a complete thing. And I think, it, it, so even in a small scale, like we, we still thought through every little detail. So when the reviewers came, and, and for some reviewers, it was their first exposure to us yeah we wanted them to understand that this is what we do yeah it's immersive but it's in a different way 
and we're uh, we're not being super specific about what is immersive. Yeah. But um, but we wanted to also show that we were trying to create a certain quality of experience mm-hmm. and care about the audience on a you know we can still care about the audience on a one to one level even when you have forty people. You start to get to like a hundred, it starts to maybe spin yeah. out of control. It's yeah, I think it's, it, but you can still conceptualize a hundred people. Yeah. So we may someday get to a hundred people, but it's not our goal for next month. Yeah. <laughs> the reality of it is, is that this scale of work, you know, filling filling four floors, mm-hmm. and everything is devised. There's no script. Yeah. There's. And and it means that you have to devise with the group. It's not one person yeah. saying, this is what we're going to do. It's everyone contributing, trimming, mm-hmm. revising, editing. It's a long process. And what we found is that it's really about a year-long process with about nine months. It's about the gestation of a human baby uh, <laughs> to have the entire group working on it. Mm-hmm. So that, given those facts, we can't do that scale of work every time. Yeah. So we have to have some smaller scale pieces that we can put in between those huge, long gestation periods. And, um, but I love the super small scale. Yeah. And I love that there's, there's a place where you can go and be the audience. You alone Mm -hmm. can be the audience for something. And, so there, there's a possibility of doing another iteration of Plunge oh, interesting. with um, different artists and different storytellers, uh, but probably more of them. So having 12 experiences at once rather than five so that we can have the opportunity to serve more people. Right. And that was a result of a workshop, uh, a series of, of workshops of with the performers, none of which have done one-to-one performance before because <laughs> right. yeah. not a lot of... Uh, like going on so um we we worked with them to to help them each devise their own interest piece um and so yeah we, based we, on a theme everybody had a theme, yeah, a, a loose theme, theme to work with called of the other so that that was a but yeah d- new devised work is important to us um collaboration collaboration mm-hmm. uh we have one it's not even a publicly stated role but 51 percent at least female team yeah um at all levels um, which you basically at the scare house sort yeah. of adhere to without yeah being super you know highfalutin about it. But yeah, I we just think it's important when fifty one percent means like if you have four people for like performers, then you it, three of them would have to be women. So it's interesting. Fifty one percent gets you yeah. to yeah <laughs> go for five, then it has to be yeah. two and um, but also at, at at all the levels of decision making too. Is, it's not just, you know. Right. Directorial, <laughs> cast, five design. In, five people, yeah. interns, and then right. the rest. Yeah. <laughs> doesn't quite get you there. So, well, uh, and I think it's fun that you're not similar to Scarehouse. Like, we don't, I, I mean, I've gone on the record several times about how we do not do depictions of helpless women. It doesn't mean, right. it used to be like no female victims. I'm like, well, that's actually in its own way kind of limiting. But <laughs> essentially, I'm not going to do the scene of the girl chained to the table while the guy's yeah, coming yeah. after or whatever. But a lot of the stuff that we do is sort of unspoken because I think it's more impactful and fun for people to slowly pick up on, oh, hey, I just realized something about <laughs> the Scarehouse team or, you know, the Submersive team. It's, mm-hmm. yeah. And other projects, you know, everything is um, 
sort of comes comes to us in interesting ways. But we we are in discussion with another historic venue in Baltimore that we cannot say more about at this time. Uh, that may be a larger scale project in the next year and a half or so. And we would. I mean, we are really nowhere down this path other than the first few thought processes. Yeah. But we would love to have our own space. Um, to be able to develop work in any way we wanted to and incubate stuff and occasionally have shows. Yeah. Um, I think we would always have an interest in transforming mm-hmm. historic spaces, but it would be nice to have your own space. And so we just yeah. need like a big box like you, like you guys have. You should yeah. have, that's also what I've learned, you know, how you can transform a box. Yeah. Right. But it's interesting, Scarehouse is not just a box. No. I mean, the history I mean, of the building mm-hmm. has definitely informed yeah. what you've done. And all space has something to say. Yes, right. All space has something to say. So, right. depending on what building we ended up getting, I'm sure that would inform what we did. Well, and I know at Scarehouse every year. I mean, there are a lot of things we want to do with the space off season because for me, you were talking about the smaller events. Our team enjoys doing the Valentine's Day basement so much. Yes, because we are creating the basement, and that's the only thing we're doing. <laughs> and because it's only open for one night. Uh, it's a relatively, you know, it sells out. We don't have to put a lot of effort into marketing and promoting it and everything. It's so nice to just not have to worry about upstairs or this, the scale yeah. of everything we have to do. Yes. So <laughs> that has been one of the long-term goals is to try to do more off-season events, do th- do some things that are more experimental and potentially immersive and what have you. It's just, again, it just we have those thoughts in January and then it reaches late April, and you're like, how many days do we open? Mm. <laughs> Maybe next year. Yeah. I believe the phrase I was looking for earlier was multidisciplinary. Yeah. Yeah. Very good. Yes. yes. Okay. Yes. <laughs> well, and and every all of us are telling stories. Yeah. Right? That's all. That's all we do as humans. Actually, is we just tell stories, and it's really important to us that we find. Lots of different ways to tell the story. Yes. And all of these artists have their own take yeah. on how that happens. And why not put them all together in one big soup and have it be so much more fun right. and rich because and, of and, it. And, you know, when you get a bunch of artists and actors from multidisciplinary approaches and backgrounds, I find, especially if you're working in a collaborative environment for a year, there's absolutely no drama. There's no <laughs> attitude. There's no ego. There's no. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, this time around, I have to say, it's, it it's kept been a minimum. very pleasant, it's, very, very pleasant process. We were very lucky with this team. Yeah. But, um, yeah, and as you know, you tend the people you want to work with again are the ones with the attitude that, yeah. you know, can. The good attitude. The good attitude. Yeah. Right. It's, right. It's what is best for the production, not necessarily what is best for yourself or your ego or your. Yeah. yeah. Oh my right. God. I mean, I. I, I think a lot of working on these collaborative projects is like having you, you have to minimize your own ego and s- swallow it quite often. But at the same time, you need enough of it in there so your best ideas. You fight get, for your best you, ideas. You fight for your best ideas. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, you have, have everybody's killing their darlings every day yeah. when you're doing this. So you have to let those things go. But you can't, you see, so you can't diminish your ego down to zero. Like you yeah. have to have. Something that brings you back into it every time. Yeah. And keeps throwing stuff out there. But that's, it can be hard. You can be 
find yourself very angry at times and you're just like, okay, I gotta keep this to myself or find some way to channel this yeah. because, um, it's what's best for the project. As someone, yeah. my least favorite phrase, and I'm sure you, you get this too, is, you know what you should do? Ah. Oh. Yeah. And then like, <laughs> all, I think all of us at the table, we are not, we do not lead with ego. We do not feel that need to tell. You know, again, as you're listening to this podcast, we've been doing haunted houses or immersive type experiences now for 30 plus years. Glenn has seen Sleep No More. He's made trips. He's done like all these things. <laughs> and you will start to get the experience of there will come an immersive show you're doing and it'll be like your third performance. And one of the actors will be like, here's what you need to do. <laughs> and, you know, you just want to nod. You want to go, do you have any idea how much time and thought has gone? And, and that is a thing that... Scarehouse too, like love them all to death. But yeah, there are definitely some people who will come in and like you've worked in the haunted house for three weeks. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, right. Or, some, or sometimes you. I mean, we would see the the test audiences coming in and seeing the reactions and what just physically how they respond and how where they move. Yeah, and got so much information from that. And we talked to them afterwards, and some of them would have different expectations. As I said, you know, way back towards the beginning. Yeah, and. Um, about like how gamified it should be or such. And yeah. we, we would listen to all those expectations and, and sort of smile and nod, and we'd sort of figure out, okay, how do we really want to respond to that? We understand that expectation, but is that a need we want to meet yes. right. with this work? And yeah. if we don't want to meet it, you know, should we pull back and respond differently? So I mean, people have a lot of good ideas, but it's sort of figuring out what what is this work doing and what's well, important. I know we've talked doing. before, a lot of defining on what, you want to be and what your point of view is going to be is saying, okay, we don't want to do that. We yeah. don't want to be the source for that particular, there's nothing wrong with it. Cause it would have been easy to say, yes. Okay. Let's build a whole game into this thing and have people like turn people into sleuths and make right. them find things right. and level up, you know? And, yeah. Um, we could have done that, but that's just, we, we realized that might've been working cross purposes. It definitely would have spread us too thin, mm -hmm. all this stuff. So we thought we'll do this cause no one's doing exactly. Yeah this right now so yeah. let's take it in the direction that we did take it <laughs> very cool well as we wrap up um it, how can people find out more about submersive well we have we have a facebook page so if you search for submersive productions on facebook um my personal instagram is delirium dog um as is my twitter and then um we have a website that uh, probably this summer we will renovate it's fairly minimal right now but i mm -hmm. do update it for like What's happening currently? Uh, submersive. And submersive is S U B M E R S I V E. Submersiveproductions.com. dot com. Mm -hmm. So um, yeah, if you follow the Facebook page, is probably the one that uh, gets the most attention and and upkeep. So and oh, we, we also have a mailing list. So you can, if you write info at submersiveproductions.com, dot com, you can ask to be added to the mailing list. Um, and Baltimore is just about a short four-hour drive from Pittsburgh, a uh, wonderfully weird city. I say that as a term of endearment. So, yeah, definitely for people in the Pittsburgh area who are listening and, you know, see of a, another show coming up, highly recommend 
hitting the road and checking it out. Makes and, for a nice day overnight trip. Yeah. Yes. And, you know, enjoy uh, all the delicious food of Baltimore, most of which has Old Bay seasoning on it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and some crabs somewhere. And some crabs, yeah. <laughs> Can't be stopped. Yeah. They're all like yeah. addicts now. What was that last, last night? It was like, oh, this is caramel corn. Is, is there Old Bay seasoning on this? Yes, yes. there is. Yes, yes there, is. there is. Of course there is. <laughs> sure. <laughs> um, and, yeah, and as always, you can find Scarehouse everywhere uh but um and as i'm going to keep saying this on the podcast it really helps us reach new listeners if you take a few seconds to go on itunes or wherever you go and just give us a little thumbs up or leave a positive review that really helps all of our syndicators that we use like itunes and everything else go uh, oh this is actually a show that people were listening to engaging to so thanks very much for listening thanks for subscribing and i still don't know how to end this so i'm just going to say bye thank you thanks